it's something to elevate and celebrate, noting that BC is the first provincial government to introduce legislation implementing the UN Declaration. With Interior Health as part of the, the BC Provincial Regional Health Authorities and British Columbia has taken steps to further implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Because it's a massive piece of legislation that Canada has supported and when something like that happens it's not just an easy rollout for health authorities. It was really more what the document really meant for the future of our health authority and how would a document like this improve health outcomes in the long run and what's the gap in between what needs to be done, what's the action. Hello and welcome back to Interior Voices, an interior health podcast series where we explore the intersection of health and culture in the workplace, our everyday lives, and patient care. This week, our hosts discuss the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples with guest Jesse McDonald. So really grateful to be able to join my salubrious colleagues here on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded seal territory. And we are here today to share with our listeners the story of United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Some of you may hear it condensed down into the acronym UNDRIP. So that's what we're talking about when you hear that word UNDRIP. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Persons was drafted back in 2007. And at that time when UNDRIP came into force, most nations around the globe had signed onto it with the exception of Canada, the United States, and Australia and New Zealand. And I think if you were to condense, I think just overall, what is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People? I think obviously developed and endorsed by nations involved in the United Nations, but what essentially is this document? Yes, exactly. So what is UNDRIP? UNDRIP consists of 46 articles ratified by the United Nations. So this was an effort in recognizing the basic human rights of Indigenous people, along with the right to self-determination. The Declaration also includes articles that affirm the right of Indigenous people to create their own education systems, receive restitution for stolen lands, and participate in all decision-making that affects their interests. And I think one note, before 2007, I think probably decades in the making, there's been work to undertake something like this and draft and develop and really understand what needs to be in this. So while 2007 was kind of the voting for the United Nations, decades of work had gone into the development of this, this document. And since 2007, there's obviously been some changes because all countries have now endorsed or signed on to this document. There were four countries in that time that did not choose to sign on to or endorse the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And since that time, all four countries eventually did. In 2010, Canada officially endorsed the declaration, but didn't actually change its official opposition status. It acknowledged that this was an aspirational document, but it wasn't until 2016 that Canada actually fully adopted and promised to implement the declaration, which is only about four years ago now. And so I think we've come a long way in what that document means to this country and how we go about healthcare service delivery and planning. And I think something really exciting in the last little while is with Interior Health as part of the, the BC Provincial Regional Health Authorities and British Columbia has taken steps to further implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. 
Yes, exactly. British Columbia, through the NDP uh, under Corrigan's leadership, did bring in UNDRIP as law in BC. Again, Chris, it is aspirational, but it's something to elevate and celebrate, noting that BC is the first provincial government to introduce legislation implementing the UN Declaration. And right behind British Columbia is the Northwest Territories. They have also put forward a bill for implementing UNDRIP as well. And then I am aware that at the federal level, UNDRIP is at third reading at Senate. So there is a chance that soon UNDRIP will move into Canadian law as well. And just touching back on our terminology episode, we had a conversation about different terminology around Indigenous and Aboriginal, and UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, I think, prompted a little bit of that shift from Aboriginal to Indigenous. So, for example, the federal government changing the National Day of Recognition from National Aboriginal Day to National Indigenous Peoples Day, and I think a lot of that terminology change shifted with the UN Declaration in that sense. That global document has shifted the way we refer to um, Indigenous peoples here in Canada. And one of the things, too, when talking about why did the BC government pass legislation to implement the UN Declaration, it really is about ending discrimination, upholding basic human rights, and ensuring more economic justice and fairness. You know, one of the other pieces that's important is really looking at the Declaration, which will form the foundation for the province's work towards reconciliation in BC, so linking it to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report as well. I think following the British Columbian government, really having this BC Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act into law, there will be a lot of shifts, of course, with all of the different ministries and how this really impacts them. So I think it's everything from health to environment to solicitor general. I think there's just every way that this could impact, I think it will. And so I think it's really exciting, a time of change for this to to take place. The piece that I really wanted to expand on that I think relates to our work here in healthcare is, I believe it's Article 23 that speaks to the right to access traditional medicine. And I find that an interesting article, especially as we work towards implementing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action as they relate to health number 18 to 24. Really, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been greatly informed by the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. It's in Article 24.1, Indigenous peoples have the right to their traditional medicines and to maintain their health practices, including the conservation of their vital medicinal plants, animals, and minerals. Indigenous individuals also have the right to access, without any discrimination, all social and health services. So this, for me, was why it was important that we, with Interior Voices, discuss UNDRIP because there's definitely articles in UNDRIP that impact the work that we are doing here. I think one of the pieces that I want to speak to, because there is a lot of information out there on how the UN Declaration and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to actions are linked. The TRC calls to action are specific to Canada and are focused on addressing the historical and ongoing damage caused by the residential school system. And the TRC also calls on government in Canada to fully adopt and implement the UN Declaration as a framework for reconciliation. So when we're thinking of UNDRIP and the TRC, both the UN Declaration and the calls to action focus on improving the rights and well-being of Indigenous peoples. I would say that this is really exciting time to be in this kind of work and in this transformation work. We have really strong documentation and pathways that support us as we move through transformation work. And so it's encouraging to see these different pieces of 
action or declarations or calls to justice being implemented and being held up as a way for us to move forward in Canada in truth-telling and in reconciliation. And I also think what's encouraging that comes out of UNDRIP for me has been the assertion of repositioning Indigenous people on our landscape and repositioning them as rights holders. So I know some of my colleagues in mental health and substance use have heard me say at meetings lately, Indigenous rights holders. Rather than saying stakeholders or partners, I have chosen to insert the language of rights holders in a way of framing our landscapes and our environments as to this is the expectation of how we comport ourselves in meaningful ways with Indigenous persons and peoples and communities. Is if we can hold in, in the forefront of our mind that when we are doing meaningful engagement, that we're doing it with people who have rights. And we, in this way, can be allies in supporting, facilitating, and laying down pathways that uphold those rights. And one way that I've heard some of this conversation be framed that really stuck with me was around the, the choice in accessing health services. So having the choice to access ways in which you want to receive healing or wellness. And I think as a health authority, it's our responsibility to provide those options for wellness and for healing and for improving health. And so to speak to the articles in UNDRIP, I think Sheila, you spoke to Article 24 around access to traditional medicines that maintain health practices and really the rights to those medicines and the rights to access. And I think we have a responsibility to increase that access and to provide the options to choose. And whether or not it's traditional medicines or Western medicine or however you seek healing, I think it's about providing that option and having the right to choose what path of healing you would prefer. Thank you for that leading, Chris, because I think I have a grounding story to share that really exemplifies how Article 24 can really work to the benefit of all of us. And so in meeting with a local nation, knowing that Interior Health has respectful relationships with eight different nations, one nation in particular, I had the opportunity to sit with a traditional knowledge keeper and explore their experiences in accessing health services with Interior Health. And this knowledge keeper had spoke to that their health, they had some blood pressure issues. And they knew about a traditional medicine that would help them with blood pressure, but they weren't able to access it at that time. So they did go to the health service and get the Western medicine that would address that health need. But what their concern was is they did eventually come in to being able to access that traditional medicine. But there was no one that could advise them of how do I switch from the Western medicine safely to my traditional medicine. And so there was no facilitation of that relationship. And so that's what inspires me around UNRIP is it calls on us in health services to look at those traditional medicines and bring equity to the Western medicine and be able to look at the different pathways that people are truly having choice, that they can move easily from one choice to the other as we gain more knowledge around appropriate uses. Yeah, and that the public health care system is really able to support that. If it's a public health care system that should be accessible to everyone, then that's a way for that to happen. So Jesse McDonald, as part of our team, had the opportunity to go to a conference in Vancouver on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And we've just been talking about some of the intro pieces, so some of the history around how this document was developed and some of the decades-long work of rights activists who have been doing this work for a long time and really the history of this work in Canada, too, and that it took a bit of a longer journey to be implemented. 
in this country. Yeah, so why don't you maybe tell us a little bit about you and your role, and then we'll jump into how the conference was. Because one of the things that we're interested in is as you know, people are learning about United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples and what does that look like, it would be just good to kind of hear from yourself. What was it like to go to this workshop and what was like one or two things that really stood out for you? Thank you very much. My name is Jessie McDonald and I'm the coordinator with the Aboriginal Health Team here at Interior Health and I've been in this role for about a year now and I'm loving it. I love the team I work with and the work that we get to do and I was fortunate to be invited to attend this conference as I was exploring what it looked like for our program to talk about, implement, and action the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples here for Interior Health. And specifically for what? Specifically, I was working on the Aboriginal Health and Wellness Strategy from 2020 to 2024. So previously, Interior Health has had a live document that is sunsetting this year. So I was really just exploring what the newest document would look like. And of course, a really important guiding piece of that work was this declaration. So it took a bit of time for me to orient myself with the declaration, uh, learn about the history, why this was being introduced, and really what does this mean for interior health and really all health authorities and all bodies that are working alongside Indigenous peoples in, in Canada in all areas. I think it's really important for this body in, in Canada to drop legislation like this because it actually is a call to some serious action for not only health authorities but say for example organizations like DC Hydro or any organization that work in the communities alongside Aboriginal people. So this conference that I attended was put on and hosted by a company called Indigenous Corporate Training and the specific seminar that I went to was called Working with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, and it was a part of actually a four-day conference. So it was a part of a wider conversation around not just UNDRIP, but around working alongside Aboriginal communities in Canada. Uh, so I was there for the specific UNDRIP section of this conference, and that's because I was, I was really deep in working through this document and really talking about, and not knowing how to really action this for a health authority because it's a massive piece of legislation that Canada supported and when something like that happens it's not just an easy rollout for health authorities it's not just okay you need to do x y and z it was really more what the document really meant for the future of our health authority and how would a document like this improve health outcomes in the long run and what's the gap in between what needs to be done what's the action so that's what I was really interested in attending to learn really to just explore the conversation and hear what other people are doing. And who would have been like a part of this workshop? We didn't do a round of introductions, so I wasn't really familiar with the people in the room, but based on the questions that were being asked, I got the sense that I was the only person there from healthcare, from the healthcare sector. So a lot of people were there working in resources, folks from forestry services, energy services. I think that's important to note because it's impacting all sectors, not just health or energy. Yeah, and I think considering the number of different stakeholders or corporate entities or businesses, ministry employees, provincial employees, I think just how impactful this is going to be across different sectors, health being one of them. Exactly, yeah. What we heard from the facilitator, who was great, we heard from him that through his personal and professional experience working alongside Aboriginal communities, we heard little tidbits of information from him, like the UNDRIP acronym can be upsetting, 
and he would like us to use the full term as it's meant to be used. He also, you know, he let us know that communities that we may be working with are expecting this adoption and it's not new to them. It's really, it's time for this to happen. So they are expecting sectors like healthcare and renewable resources and forestry to act on this. So it's not really a time to wait. This is a call to action and it's a call to action for right now. So we went over the purpose of UNDRIP and in their site, the purpose of UNDRIP is that it's a self-determination document to protect the rights of Indigenous peoples uh, and the right to participate in decision-making. And we talked about the kind of nuances of that, so the meaning of decision-making can be different. So that's when he really brought in the, the history, and through the Indian Act, Aboriginal people were placed in a position to be totally dependent on the state, and some people really have had the ability to be decision-makers taken away. So it's more than just saying, okay, you can make the decision. It's really unpacking that and doing a proper, respectful, collaborative decision-making process does give them power to make decisions, but with that power, we also need to empower. And we talked about the history of colonization, and we talked about it from the lens of it being the economic exploitation of another group. We talked about the limitations of UNDRIP. For example, land is not defined in UNDRIP. Territories or resources are not defined. And this document is not legally binding. So it is a declaration in the sense of a guide. So it's, it's really up to the responders of this document to determine how they are going to adopt it, which is, in essence, why I was there. Because it was not just a healthcare conference, we really spent, I would say, the majority of the time talking about consent. When you think about consent, even though it was across the sectors, what comes up around consent in healthcare, in accessing services? But I also know we also have research department within the health authority and other places where consent is really important. So mm-hmm. I get curious as to what that brings up for us. Mm-hmm. That's a really important really important thought process to go into when doing any of this work. And the terms that really floated around the conference were consent, self-determination, adoption, reconciliation, and veto. And we were asked a question, what's the difference between a veto and consent? Mm. And of course, it's the, the end result as to how you get to a decision. There are two different pathways. One is an equal pathway or an equal conversation, and the other is a decision being made by the party of power. What I really think is important in healthcare is that we don't have power to veto. <laughs> but when we're talking about logging, say, or pipeline development, gas and oil development, there are tools in place for organizations to be able to veto. And I don't know the parallel for that in healthcare because most cases somebody's approaching healthcare for services and for help. So to get there, you can only get there based on their consent. When we talk more about the nuances and the actual questions being asked, like ASI or something like that, consent is more important. I kind of get curious about the veto part and where it maybe lies in healthcare because I go back to traditional medicine, the plants, or even spiritual care or other pieces. Like, are there places that, as a health authority, we have a place of power that things, even if we might want them as a recipient of care, get stalled or halted based on policies and things like that? And so it's not like they're vetoing it, but they have to follow policies and certain laws and legalities, right? So I get kind of curious, though. Yeah, well, I see that a little bit more as a systemic barriers, but I see veto playing out more in how we engage partners, and I think it's really through that power and equity conversation. So if we're talking about service planning, we come to a table with our partners, and I think there's really a, an acknowledgement of the, the power inequity or potentially the, the funding inequity that at, that's at that decision. So if we talk about planning a service in X hospital in the interior region, are we truly asking for consent for projects? Are we asking for communities to veto the projects? Are we just going into inform that we're doing this work? I think 
for me, it plays out a lot more in how we engage in some of that relational piece of, you know, are we truly doing collaborative work where there's everyone's empowered to have a voice and empowered to be part of the decision? Or is it a process where there's really that inequity of decision making and there's no opportunity to be able to pass? That's kind of where it came up for me, but I, I think... I think we're all acknowledging we don't have the answers and we're more continuing to think this through. And I kind of get curious too around conflict resolution, right? So if there's conflict in that engagement process, how does that conflict get worked through in a meaningful and collaborative way? Because in all relationships, there can be conflict, but it's that commitment to have that conflict resolution to kind of see it through and to continue that partnership. So I know, Jesse, you have very limited yeah, time. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. So I guess maybe from the, the conference, were there any big takeaways or something that you did pull into the Aboriginal Health and Wellness Strategy from that conference, or just things that you continue to think about? Certainly, yeah. So like I said, a lot of the conversation was around consent versus veto. I replaced that term with self-determination for mm-hmm. the sake of healthcare, because I think that self-determination and its existence is inclusive of history. And as we were drafting this strategy moving forward for the health authority, for these documents, such as UNDRIP and the TRC, Dependency and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, Health to Justice, for these documents to be useful, they need to be inclusive of history, like they all are. So that was really important to take away and try to implement the new strategy. So the strategy, when it's finished, you'll see, is it is inclusive history and it's, it has relevant commitments from the health authority for the future. But what I really took away was something that was really obvious, but is always really useful to be reminded. And like Chris, you said, and Vanessa, you echoed, we don't have the answers right now, so we need to ask. And we need to be clear on what these terms that we're throwing around mean to the community. What is their mindset of adoption? What is their version of self-determination? What does adoption mean to yourself? And how do we, as a health authority, create a document that's going to continue to guide and set the vision for the rest of the health authority to look to? And what we will hopefully learn and hear is that each community is different. So I'm really excited to continue to ask that question and to continue to implement those answers in the documents that guide our work every day because it's vital for the communities. And then we will begin to learn what advantages exist if we adopt this declaration. Thank you so much. And we hope to have you back when we talk about the new strategy. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Jesse. Okay, there is something that we absolutely need to spend a moment to acknowledge and talk about and have space for. Right, Chris? Yes. Right, Beth? Yes. If you start to hear one voice disappear off the podcast, that is because our glorious colleague, Sheila, (laughs) is accepting a wonderful new role outside of Interior Health. And we're so happy for her and so proud of her, but we're also very disappointed that we will have that third bubbly voice who's always bringing so much laughter. And I think most of the moments at the end of the episode have been Sheila laughing, so... (laughs) Yes, and I are going to have to step up our game. Initiated exactly. by Sheila. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, just really want to honor and take this time because this was an organic initiative that came about with the four of us in the room and just the synergy and the relationships and the conversations we've been able to have over this past just over a year, I think has been really meaningful. And every voice here is so important and significant and really birthed this journey. And I think because of that, it is so important to just acknowledge all that you've contributed to these conversations and the energy, but also the boldness and the honesty 
and the bravery and having courageous conversations, not only amongst ourselves, but with those that you've brought in to interview. Thank you. <laughs> I think now Beth needs to say something. Um, yeah. <laughs> the energy that Sheila brings to everything always makes my day. And certainly the magic of this group is in large part a testimony to what Sheila has brought to us. And I know that she'll be back in various episodes and roles, but boy, will we miss having her as a regular. There's just so much to say and so much that Sheila has contributed, I think, to all of our lives, both personally and professionally. And thank you. Thank you so much. And we definitely want to make sure to, to acknowledge and celebrate her as she takes a leap of faith into this new role that she's accepted and all the things that she's going to bring and they sure better know who they're getting. <laughs> but yes, we're not going to let her go too far away. We definitely have conversations and plans to bring her back to some of our podcasts and also relationship building and just the work that we're doing. But just really wanted to celebrate the time that we've had with her and to celebrate the new movements that she's making in her career path. And now we'll hand it to Sheila, maybe, unless Chris has something like The moment Sheila walks in with her unicorn mug full of coffee, we know it's going to be a good day. So <laughs> I think just, yeah, a huge thank you. And I think we are all so different but bonded in the ways that we're so similar. And so there was this amazing chemistry that brought forward a lot of the innovation and creativity, and that wouldn't happen without all four of us. So just a huge thank you for being a huge part of that. And always gratitude in my mind is reciprocal. And I want to say thank you to all three of you as well for that radical trust, that bravery, that willingness and in solidarity as we did something that's pretty public. When I came to Interior Health, I started as the Aboriginal Regional Knowledge Coordinator for the Aboriginal Mental Wellness Team. And at the time of hiring, Judy Sturm, the Director of Aboriginal Mental Wellness, that said that we don't do a really good job in mental health and substance use in demonstrating what we do in this work. And I took that as a call to action, not to make a play on words with the truth and reconciliation, but it was, as people have often heard me say on the podcast and in meetings, I felt like I had the opportunity in terms of pulling back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz, so to speak. And so, as many of our colleagues will know, I began with Facebook and photo documenting. What does that look like for the Aboriginal mental wellness team going out and implementing the five focus areas of that plan? And really, what does that look like in terms of meaningful engagement with our rights holders in the interior region? And in that journey, it led me to Beth, our communications coordinator, who has been glue in this podcast opportunity and many other ways of promoting, elevating, and celebrating good work that all areas our Indigenous colleagues are doing. So we definitely know about Aboriginal health, and it's brought a highlight to Aboriginal mental wellness. It's brought a highlight to our Aboriginal human resources. We've had so many great opportunities with our Aboriginal patient navigators, our Aboriginal cultural safety education. So that bravery, when we came together and Beth and I were meeting and talking about, you know, what are the ways that we can pull back that curtain further and going, oh my goodness, we've got a Vanessa Mitchell and we've got a Chris Murray and we got us all in the same room. And we still talk about who came up with the idea, but podcasts. Why not? Here we are a year later. We're talking about episode 29 that we just recently recorded with Mal Griffin. And we have pulled back the curtain 
We have elevated and celebrated the different ways that our colleagues throughout the organization, 20,000 strong, have really meaningfully engaged with the calls to action, with priorities that have come out of the Aboriginal health and wellness strategy, the focus areas that have come out of Aboriginal mental wellness, and now that Aboriginal HR plan of recruiting and retention. And so, as always, that enthusiasm really is deeply rooted in how excited I am about this landscape and environment that we've been able to explore, elevate, and celebrate together. And you speak about the laughter, laughter is medicine, and I'm so grateful in the diverse ways, the salubrious ways that we bring medicine to the work that we, that we do. Like I always keep trying to say in this transition, this is not a goodbye. This is, I will see you differently. And I'm always about solidarity and unity. And so my hope is as I move to Métis Nation BC in the role of Provincial Women's Coordinator, that we'll really be focusing attention on the missing and murdered Indigenous women's and girls' reports, claiming speaking truth to power, that I will continue that good solidarity work. I will be close not only to interior voices, but Aboriginal health and wellness communications, Aboriginal mental wellness, Aboriginal health, Aboriginal human resources. And so for those of you that are creating my dulcet tones, <laughs> don't worry, I will be back. Thank you for joining us for episode two of season two. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, you can email us at interiorvoices at interiorhealth.ca. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe to Interior Voices on iTunes. Good morning, Interior Voices. Here we are back again, sharing all things Indigenous and health-related. No, that will be the intro. Anyway, uh, yes, that will be the intro. <laughs>